You're listening to Drek FM. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Black Queen on the Red King, Miss... Solitaire. My name's Bond. James Bond. I know who you are, what you are, and why you have come. You have made a mistake. You will not succeed. Rather a sweeping statement, considering we've never met. Have followed you for me. Welcome, everybody, to the Filet of Soul. I'm so excited to be here tonight. Hopefully, you've gotten your bourbon and wander and haven't gotten turned around in the back uh, booth. Uh, I am the host here, Matthew Rushing, and I'm so excited. If you haven't figured it out yet, if you need a little hint, uh, I'm going to be bonding with my co-hosts this evening, and I'm so excited to have back with me uh, a, a brand new member to the Bond team, but uh, one that I know people have loved because, well, I think that she helped make it the most downloaded Bond episode ever. So welcome back, Christy Morris. Hey, thanks. Wow, that's um, really flattering. <laughs> yeah, well... It it was great. The episode did great, and uh, I it could just be because we had way too much fun talking about a movie that's not all that much yeah. fun. Diamonds are forever, so maybe that's what people were responding to. And so. I mean, you know, I don't want to down <laughs> myself either, but maybe too, it's just because that one ends up being, I think, one that's very iconic and really sticks out in people's minds. Um, the title, the song, the last Sean Connery, all of that too. Yeah, there's a. I mean, there is a lot that kind of sticks in your mind, even if you don't yeah. want it to. So, I mean, you know, uh, Mr. Wint, Mr. Kid, need I say more? I love uh, that. <laughs> but yeah, thanks for having me. And, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, ex- I'm so excited to have you back to talk uh, a little bit of Live and Let Die. And uh, a guy whose motto is Live and Let Die, the one and only John Champion. It's great to have you back here to get into some more Bond. Matt, uh, Sazerac for me tonight, uh, too, actually. I'm just uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna get ahead of the game here in order to right off the bat. That's a good idea. Mm-hmm. I, I I think if you're gonna watch this Bond movie, mm-hmm. you should definitely be ahead of the game, yep. drink wise, yeah. before you turn yeah. it on. Yeah, <laughs> not a bad idea. Yeah. No, not a bad idea at all. Um, well, before we get uh really into the film, just want to remind everybody, uh, you can find all the shows that we do here on the network at Trek FM on Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM. We are a feature provider. So, um, yeah, help us out while you're there. We, we're still a growing network. You can always help out any of the shows and especially the 602 club with a star rating and review. We'd really appreciate that. It definitely helps the show as you know, we want more people to find us. Um, and, uh, I know a lot of people have been finding the show for the first time uh, which is a really fun thing uh you know uh, we've been around for a while now but you know every little bit helps so just keep it coming i actually did want to say a quick thank you uh we had gotten a new review recently and uh, i just wanted a huge shout out to well, actually wow there are two new reviews i did not even see this, this is fantastic i'm surprised guys it's happening live well not really live because you're listening to this recorded but anyway uh josh Luren, thank you so much he said that this is the best podcast ever i i can't beat that thank you five stars he said two so it, he said that it's amazingly fantastic so guys we have a lot to live up to tonight All right. <laughs> amazingly fantastic and then we had another review by Palpatander, and it is Outstanding Geek Culture Podcast, five stars. And they said that it truly offers something for every fandom. So I really appreciate that, the the star ratings and reviews. Keep them coming. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at TrekFM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. We're, uh, of course, our own website at Trek.FM. And if you want to discuss the shows with everybody else who listens to them, go over to the Babel Conference, which is our listeners-only discussion group, and that's on Facebook. Uh, Just type Babel into the search field on Facebook, and that'll bring you to the group. You can ask to be let in, and we'll let you in. And you can talk about all the shows, uh, 602 Club included. So, 
Guys, this is, excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> this is uh, a very interesting Bond movie because as we talked about, the last one was Sean Connery's last. And there is a huge question as to where to go next. Obviously, it's not going to be Lazenby. We're not even going to think about him. Uh, they did ask Sean to come back. Uh, he said that there were only two things he wanted in life, and that was to own his own golf course and his own bank. And he had the golf course. <laughs> he wasn't interested in the bank. Uh, he wasn't interested in coming back for Bond. And, uh, John, I was shocked to see this question come up again of do we have an American play Bond? Because that's what United Artists wants at this point. Why do you think that is, especially with the massive success that they're having with the Bond franchise? Yeah, I, you know, it's so strange. I, I think that'll come up, honestly, pretty much all the time when a Bond needs to be recast. So they'll, they'll look as wide as they can and, and think, well, how do we reinvent the character? How do we keep it fresh? Um, do we go American? Do we go English? Do we go for something totally exotic? Uh, do, do we cast a man? Do we cast a woman? And all of those things are on the table. Now, the pressure, though, that United Artists would would sort of um, bring upon Eon Productions to have an American, it, it doesn't make sense given that they had had success with a British Bond before. You know that that that's sort of one of the appeals yeah. of the character. So it is, it is a little strange. And if you look at Diamonds Are Forever, which we did, um, you kind of have to ask if the Americanization of Bond, e even just by changing location, is a good idea or not. Something that we can come back to in this episode as well. So it, it is strange. I, I, again, I, I don't think it's a bad idea to just have every option on the table, but. They should have been proving to themselves already that this is probably not a way that we need to go. And Christy, one of the interesting things that you end up with, the names that are thrown out there are all names that we're very familiar uh, with, like a Burt Reynolds or a Paul Newman or a Robert Redford. I mean, do you see any of these names as people that you're like, oh, I could see them as Bond? I don't want to um, say that they're not good actors. Let me preface it with that. Um, but I, I don't <laughs> see any of them fitting in that part. Um, because, I mean, first of all, when I think Burt Reynolds, I think Smokey and the Bandit. So, yep. you know, do mm -hmm. I want that yeah. kind of persona in the suit being Bond? No, it feels like too much of a cowboy. Um, you know, and then Robert Redford, I feel like, um, wouldn't, either wouldn't enjoy or wouldn't be in his element as much trying to be a, a campy Bond um, like Roger Moore did. I feel like Robert Redford is that very serious actor. And so I, just none of them really fit that to me. And I, I, I guess I understand that United Artists wants to mix it up. Maybe they're just bored with it by it being the eighth film. Um, and so they're like, well, why don't we try again about this American actor being Bond idea? But um, really, in the end, I, I just always think British is better for this part. And maybe that's because it's so ingrained into me at this point. But um, I love it the way that it is. So, yeah, I don't think it would have worked. You know, it's kind of the question that, that came about when they were thinking about doing Harry Potter. And do you Americanize that? Yeah. And I think we all instinctively say, no, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and to me, I think it, even at this point, Bond really does feel like he has just cemented himself as a British character. Like he, he is as British as it gets. In fact, I remember, uh, remember when the Olympics were in London years back now at this point yeah. and uh, they had Bond jump out of an airplane. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. like he's as British as it, I mean, the, he's just quintessentially British at this point. So, and I think you're right. I mean, gosh, when I think of Burt Reynolds, I'm always thinking of um, Norm Macdonald playing him on. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah it's uh, it's funny because it's a it's a big hat. It's it's bigger than the normal size hat. It's funny, mm -hmm. uh, you know. It, but yeah, I just none of these actors. I mean, I think Paul Newman might be the closest I could see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. still, uh, because he has, he has that ability to be so wonderfully 
cunning and whatnot, but he also is very charming. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, but it's never he could do the dangerous edge, is what I'm saying. Like, but yeah, I, I agree with Robert Redford. Just he, he, I don't think he would have fit the role. I don't think he'd been as comfortable in the role. And obviously, you know, when they decide to go with Roger Moore, even Roger Moore himself, you know, he's played Simon Templar in The Saint, and he's not going to be Connery. And so Mankiewicz knows this as well, the the writer of the script, and he really works to fit the screenplay for Moore's persona. And uh, so I guess the... The question is continuing on Moore's first outing here. What do you think of him in this this first outing as James Bond? How does he work for you? What about you, Christy? I, I to me, this is a, I immediately thought it's the king of camp. It's when campy Bond begins to me. Um, you know, um, I feel like like you said, he, uh, Roger Moore has this charisma about him, but then he also can bring in that total goofy side of what we think of like i said the only word i have is campiness um where he says for example after laying with jane seymour he's teaching her lessons and she says well do we have time for lesson number three and he goes oh sure no use in going out half cocked and you're like whoa (laughs) (laughs) and everything like that about him in this movie makes me blush (laughs) Yeah, it's like your grandpa telling you a dirty yeah, joke. Yeah, you're isn't like it? grandpa. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's how you feel with this with with Roger Moore's Bond. I don't. What do you think, John? Does does Moore give you something, especially with this first film, that makes you think, okay, I want to see where he's going to go next, or, or what is this experience like for you with Roger Moore? Well, it's very interesting. He's a very youthful forty-five. So he's older than Sean Connery when Connery retired. But we were talking several movies ago about how Connery was starting to look old and bored with the whole thing. So um, he he brings a bit of kind of youth and vitality and fun back to the role that that we haven't seen in a little while. Um, Now, that may not be everybody's cup of tea. And certainly there are problems with the writing. And I think the way this movie introduces him to the role of Bond. I think he's doing a fine job. I mean, I I think he's okay given the material that he is given. He's different, and different is okay. Um, Certain things like the cigar, uh, it's a bit of an affectation that I think is just unnecessary. It's just trying to put something visual to distinguish this Bond from another Bond. Um, But he's got a certain kind of charisma He's a nice looking guy. Um, it's in most ways it works. I think the things that are working against him are not entirely his fault. So if if Roger Moore shows up on day one and says, well, I'm going to play this a little lighter than Connery, fine. But if the script then has these, uh, Christy, as you point out, the, these moments that are just the jokes that don't quite hit, that just feel a little creepy, just feel a little misplaced. Well, there's a lot in this movie that feels misplaced. Indeed. <laughs> so, so I don't think it's entirely Roger Moore's doing. I see what both of you are saying. And I got to say, you know, I mean, I don't know. I guess who wasn't one over the when you get to Bond bath time? You know, mm-hmm. uh, it. I mean, who doesn't want to see, you know, Bond take a bath. Uh, very manly of him. Yeah, right. Uh, getting right. in the bathtub. I just laughed at that. I was like, God, who takes a bath? <laughs> um, you know, uh, anyway, the thing about this is, and I, I, I think you make a, a good point, John. There's just a lot here in the script that doesn't do Roger Moore a lot of favors. Right. And it takes them, I think, a couple of movies for them to finally get the feel for him. Mm-hmm. And let's be honest, I think we all know what we're talking about when we, because I'm, I'm getting to, it's really not until The Spy Who Loved Me that you're like, oh, this is what they've been trying to do for the last two years. Exactly. Weeks. Yep. And yep. They, they finally are able to get that. And what's so fascinating about that, you know, John, we've been walking through this chronologically, and it doesn't take them that long to figure out Connery. But I think that's because Connery was already on the page Mm -hmm. in the James Bond books. Mm -hmm. This is not truly James Bond. Let's just be honest. 
it is a it's the first time where it's somebody pretending to be something like James Bond, but not quite James Bond, especially the way in which he's been portrayed before and Fleming had written him originally. Well, I mean, here's the thing, though. I, I would say that it, it's, yeah, it's not James Bond by the book, and you can certainly go through and find the things in the books that Connery doesn't perfectly match because there, there are those elements as well. Yes, yes. Um, but at, at this point, the James Bond movies are something entirely different from the James Bond books. And a knowledge of the books does not predicate uh, watching or enjoying the movies and, um, and, and vice versa. So I, I'm usually the person who is in favor of recasting, reinventing, rebooting. Whatever that franchise or, or, or topic might be. Sometimes it works great and you find things that you didn't expect. Um, and again, I, I you know, predicate all of this on the idea that what more brought to this movie, that there is something distinctive and charismatic and very watchable about him, but I still feel like a lot of the problems there are not necessarily meshing the right guy with the right story. And and the problem is this. I don't think this is the right story for most anybody. I don't think this is the right story for Connery, for sure. I don't think it's the right story for Lazenby. <laughs> and if you were to jump ahead, you know, they had talked about Timothy Dalton way back when. Um, and even if you had brought Timothy Dalton in for this movie, I don't think it would have been the right match for him either. So um, it, it's, it, it's a little tough to call. He's there's no way that Roger Moore can be Sean Connery's James Bond. He can only be Roger Moore's James Bond, just like Sean Connery can only be Sean Connery's James Bond. Um, so what he's doing is his thing, and we've got several more movies to see how successful or unsuccessful that is in, in the long run. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right, because his thing is going to be what we get in the other films like The Spy Who Loved Me, For Your Eyes Only, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, all of those I think start to hit more of that stride and they really do fit more the the Roger Moore Bond. I'm thinking of Bonds that might have pulled this uh, this story off the best, um, just throughout the series. I honestly feel like Timothy Dalton and Craig would have probably been the closest to be able to pull off this story because really what the story needed was less camp and more edge. Mm -hmm. And that was never going to be Roger Moore. Yeah. Uh, and I think you're absolutely right. It just, it's just it, none of the material is just really fitting the character and it's, it's not his fault, you know, uh, because I think you hit something on the head earlier, which is Moore does something for the Bond franchise that it's needed, and it's needed life, yeah, and yeah. vitality. And he definitely brings that. It, you, there is there is nothing about him here that feels old or tired. I mean, let's just talk about it. But this the, the movie has a credit sequence that doesn't have Bond in it at all, mm -hmm. and then you get the song, and then you go to Bond's house. And there's this wonderful scene to introduce you to Bond mm -hmm. with Q, with M coming over, Money Penny. He's trying to hide a woman that he's had in his place and not let M know she's there. Uh, also, uh, somebody, an Italian agent who, you know, he uh, basically has stolen away. Mm -hmm. <laughs> for, and all of this stuff, it is the perfect opening for Roger Moore's Bond. And it sets you on a real high, I believe, because everything is clicking. Like, this is all Roger Moore stuff. Yeah. And then the rest of the movie lets him down. But it's a fantastic beginning, and it's a great introduction to him as James Bond. Because, I mean, he even starts all the jokes with the, you know, the watch with the magnet and taking her right. dress mm -hmm. off and everything. I mean, that's just classic Roger Moore. Yep. And unfortunately, that's the only time we see Money Penny in the whole movie. <laughs> or Q. Or M, sorry. M, yeah. Yeah, there's no, and no, you're right. No there's actually yeah. no Q yeah. in this movie. It, you know, we don't have an opportunity to do that. I just absolutely love that 
M just barges into his house in the middle of the night. <laughs> uh, and it's it, what I like about it is that it also creates an interesting new dynamic for those characters, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it sets them on a different path for these films. Like, And I, I just thought that was really fun. So, it, yeah, it's definitely a good way to start off the movie. It, I wanted to ask you something that I really did notice, though, about the, the film. The difference between Bond and even just the way he's dressed, it's, you know, very straight-laced, gentleman's apparel, and kind of his mannerisms and character and everything, and how they just really kind of stick out like a sore thumb everywhere he is in the movie that's not London at this point. And I'm sure even if he was out in the streets in London, he would stick out too, because the world has changed so much, but Bond hasn't and so when he's walking around new york and harlem uh it has nothing to do with his skin color it just has everything to do with his mannerisms the way he's dressed and all did did either of you notice that at all in this movie oh, how, how could you not notice it <laughs> yeah. Yeah. i mean I, I think part of the problem here is the sort of uh uh a misfire in in how they approach it so when we were talking about you only live twice one of the things that I picked up in that was this weird kind of cultural appropriation where it, it was painting Japan and Japanese culture as this otherworldly exotic place that the white man has to go figure out, you know? And, and we kind of get that here. Well, we, we definitely get that here with Bond's entry into Harlem and then all the other uh, uh, places that he ends up um, where he does stick out like a sore thumb, where he definitely does not belong there, but it's sort of like, it's sort of like for the for the moviegoer, whoever the producers assumed their audience was, he's sort of like their entry port into this bizarre world that they would otherwise never experience on their own. <laughs> so it's it's a bit strange, and that really speaks to the black exploitation roots of this story. Yeah, I was going to say, I think um, you really hit a point there as well, Matt, with saying that it's not just about the color of his skin. You know, it's about anyone that walks into a really casual place like Filet of Soul and is wearing a well-looking, you know, tailored suit um, and, you know, speaks like they're well-educated and things like that. That kind of place is more of like, you know, everybody's using slang, hanging out, having some fried chicken kind of thing. Because it's in the name of the restaurant, even it's like a soul food kind of place. And um, yeah, I think he sticks out for all of those reasons, which is a little bit funny when you think about the fact that he's a secret agent and he's on a mission and you send out the guy who does anything but undercover. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. There's yeah, it's exactly that. And I think it's a great time to talk about, Johnny, this kind of new direction that the Bond films kind of go in, because the first four five films really set the stage and set the tone for everybody else to want to follow they they set the tempo they become the things that everybody wants to emulate yeah including including themselves yes, which is kind yeah. of the the strange part of it yeah, yeah. no exactly mm-hmm. exactly i think yeah, you kind of end up with that problem and we talked about with diamonds or forever mm-hmm. where it's trying to emulate itself. And, and yeah, but we're in the seventies now and a lot has changed in the world. And the question was, as they were making this movie is bond relevant is, is it, it, do people still want to go see him? And that's where you get them turning to what's popular and trying to incorporate that into bond which is the black exploitation films, and we use that as a basis for, you know, uh, the, the villains in the movie. Which is sad that it's only the villains, and they don't have a character that's helping them. So you get a balance. Like they're just the villains in the movie, and that's disappointing. They do have one um, quarrel that helps him on oh, the you're boat right. later. You're- you have, you do, uh, you're absolutely right. You do have Rosie Carver and you do have the other agent who is working with them and who gets murdered in uh, New Orleans. But we don't get to spend a lot of time 
with him specifically. And she is so inept, unfortunately, <laughs> that I think it doesn't hurt your case. It hurts, it hurts the case that, you know. And so, and I don't have a problem with using gangsters or Harlem gangsters as the villains in the movie. I think it's the way that they go about it and everything is a cliche and an archetype and it's just not done very well. Yep, I agree. I mean, this isn't Shaft. (laughs) (laughs) Though it wants to be. It does, which is so weird. Yeah, but it's not. And and again, it just feels like this weird appropriation, like, oh, well, let's just sort of throw darts at the dartboard to see what's popular right now. Oh, oh, okay, well, blaxploitation, all right, so we'll do that. but it also speaks to, like you're saying, the Bond films not really necessarily having a sense of identity, you know. Um, and we we got there before this movie because Diamonds Are Forever felt a bit like a 1970s cop TV show, and this one feels like a 1970s cop TV show as well. Um, it, it's not on the scale of something like Goldfinger. Um, where you really feel like that's a fully realized world. Um, Now, that said, there is actually something to be said for the idea that, all right, we're going to take Bond out of his comfort zone, and we're going to put him in a place that feels a little more real world. You know, these are places that for an American audience, you can go. You can go to Louisiana, and you can see these bayous and little rivers where these boat chases take place. So, there's something kind of neat about that. It's not so exotic that you you can't believe that it exists. Um, but then the question becomes, well, does that actually serve the character of Bond that we know so far? Yeah, I, honestly, I think that it's more interesting when they go more fantastical places. I think that it lost something when, you know, we were talking Diamonds Are Forever and they were in Las Vegas and it felt very old and tired And then now, even in this movie, it kind of felt that way with me with the visit to Harlem and to New Orleans and to the crocodile farm that (laughs) that it was kind of tired locations that are not super interesting. But um, the one place that was interesting to me was the island. And look, let's let's definitely be honest, you know. On a lot of those Caribbean islands, they have some of the strangest voodoo ritual things that happen. <laughs> but again, you know, it's unfortunate the way that it's portrayed here is just kind of laughable. Yeah, it's a sort of it's it's a prop. It's a prop. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and and like you said, John, it, it's what it's, what's happening is it's not coming across as truly real. It's coming across as more of like a caricature of something, mm-hmm. you know. Um, the belief in and um, reverence for voodoo or tarot cards and that kind of thing is deep-rooted in a lot of those those cultures from New Orleans and then throughout the Caribbean and everything. Um, what's frustrating, and I think we were, when we were kind of talking about, you know, how Roger Moore fits in and everything, the movie plays this campy, and that's what hurts the story. Mm-hmm is it's not being played as serious as when uh, you got um, Goldfinger was even kind of serious. Uh, definitely from Russia with Love. If this was done, I think, in in more of that framework, it might actually work a lot better. Yeah. Because this is a much... This is a much more, like, topical and... Um, relevant thing at that point because we have a a topical villain who's a drug baron and is using the drug epidemic in America to try and make millions. And uh, it's also the time in which the drug epidemic in America is becoming a much bigger thing, you know, uh, with heroin and LSD and all, or excuse me, as Kirk would say, LDS (laughs) and all of those things that are happening. And it's, it's sad because the villain here who is so topical could have been something really great. 
but by not taking it seriously and making him campy, well, you just make it look like the worst kind of cultural appropriation and... Um, I don't know. It, it's almost like we're making fun of everybody but Bond in this movie. Yeah, right, right. That's how it felt to me as well. It Definitely, like you said, they had a good skeleton to go from, but then they were trying to go in two different directions at the same time. They were trying to have this underlying story of it being the drug trafficking and him trying to make money off of that, um, Kananga, but then also having all of these like you said, the black exploitation and everything of having voodoo and tarot cards and the Caribbean that, like I said, they're trying to do two different things at the same time that don't make sense together. Mm-hmm. Serious, but campy. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a good way to put it. You, you are trying, you have a more serious topic and you've camped it and it, it ruins the effect. What did you guys think about, because uh, I think Yafit Koto as the villain here is actually pretty fantastic. I think he's a good actor and I think the, the way he plays it is so calm and cool most of the time. And he's super scary. Like the way that he's controlling solitaire, the way he's controlled her mother, apparently. I mean, it, you just get major creep vibes off of this guy and he feels like somebody who would be willing to exploit people's drug habits to make millions and not care like i think he just he's very good yeah he seems to me that he is always a step ahead of what you expect that bond thinks he's going to be doing one thing and then um that conversation between bond and kananga where kananga goes oh no 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 this is what i'm actually doing and bond's like oh (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's got a tremendous intensity, and it, it was interesting to read how young he was when they made this movie. He was about 33, um, and he's just got a lot of power and, and gravitas, and uh, he's great to watch. Yeah, yeah, he's very intense. Well, I think, again, you know, if if we had had a, you know, we have a more serious take on the storyline, it it makes the villain and it makes everything that's happening feel more realistic and not so campy it all works better for the story for the characters we don't feel like oh you're just trying to make your own bond black exploitation film you know that you're actually trying to do something that you know actually seems kind of relevant in the same ways that when you think of how you do bond with casino royale after 9-11 and you incorporate what's happening in the world to make Bond relevant again. You know, uh, and you think about the ways that Bond could have been more relevant here in this story in somebody who's trying to stop massive drug cartels. You know, I mean, they don't really try this again until License to Kill, mm-hmm. which I think is much more successful because it's definitely a more serious take on a very serious topic kind of hard to make drugs funny honestly (laughs) you know right right (laughs) oh everybody's getting high and dying on coke way to go Uh, there are uh, in in this movie there are a lot of bond women and um you know the the first one that we meet is miss caruso uh played madeline smith who is the italian secret agent that bond is you know romancing when uh m and money penny unexpectedly turn up at his house uh and she doesn't really have a lot to do but again i think that scene is oh man if the rest of the movie had been like that it would have been wonderful you know it because it fit roger moore perfectly and and she fit right in with that i thought that was just a a great scene yeah, I mean, she's really just there to to serve that scene and to serve that joke. She's not obviously a, a very fleshed out character, um, but there's something. She's not a Bond villain. Uh, she's not a Bond woman of another caliber, <laughs> right. you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, but you know, it, it, I think what's so cool about that scene is seeing Bond's apartment again, putting mm-hmm. Bond in the real world that he he's got a place, he's got a place to go home to when he's not saving the world. I, I think that's why we all really like that scene. And it's kind of funny now 
you know, more than 40 years later that, uh, that M is so befuddled by a coffee maker. But, um, mm. <laughs> you know, at the time, at the time, that was, that was serious stuff. Yeah. You know Money Penny makes his coffee every morning. Oh, of course. He wouldn't. Yeah, he doesn't know how to use that. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, the the behind the scenes on that is very funny. Uh, Madeline Smith apparently was very uncomfortable doing that scene because she only has underwear on, or pants as the British call them, mm-hmm. and no top. And apparently Mrs. Moore was on the set mm. for those scenes. And she was just very uncomfortable being in bed with Roger and being that unclothed when his wife was around. So I was like, that's, that's, I could understand that. No, I wouldn't want to do that either. (laughs) Which is weird Um, because now in Hollywood, that's so common. (laughs) It seems like nobody cares now. And it was a bigger deal in the (laughs) seventies. Yeah. I think that's just a commentary Mm -hmm. on our culture more so than anything else. (laughs) But, um, we have Gloria Henry as, uh, Rosie Carver and, I don't I don't know what to make of this character honestly. I was I didn't remember her being so unbelievably inept in the film. But it'd been a long time since I'd seen this and I just feel like it's really sad that they went that way with the character. I'm really disappointed that they they didn't have her have more substance. I felt that way too. I honestly felt like she was running around and screaming a lot and not filling in the gaps with much language that was useful other than the screaming. So it it definitely felt like, why is she so lacking? What are we going to see from her next other than this um, kind of disappointment? Yeah, it's unfortunate. I mean, they you think that they started with this kernel of a character where uh, okay, well we'll we'll try to give her some it, we'll give her a position that she's she's in on the mission and we'll give her a little bit of edge, but then they they just shoot themselves in the foot all over the place with that character. So it's yeah, it's such a a botched attempt. You know, e- even if she does die, in the if you were to rewrite it even if she does still die the way that she did there just give her some dignity <laughs> just give her some some competence yeah and i like that you said it's like they they started out with some edge to her when she comes mm-hmm. in and she sneaks the pistol in the door frame and then he mm-hmm. happens to grab it and then throws her in you think that she's going to be a more tough stand-up woman and then immediately she turns into this you know just frightened silly girl who needs bond to protect her and i'm like wait a minute she came into his room with a gun and now she's a you know puddle of goop yeah i mean she's no grace jones so (laughs) right so right um it's funny you both saying those things because my wife turned to me and she's like wait she's supposed to be like in the cia (laughs) (laughs) like who is she it just it made ab yeah it made absolutely no sense that she would be somebody who's on her second mission and works for an intelligence agency and yet seems to have no intelligence. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And and that is so frustrating for the character because it would have been so much better for her and Bonds to be more equal. And yet her you can still have her die in a similar fashion, but give her kind of a Vesper like reason for betraying Bond. Mm-hmm. So that she is a much stronger character. And honestly, I mean, I think it's obvious at this point they, they don't care about that kind of stuff. Yeah. And it, it's it's just it's just here and and that's what we get. And I think it it's it's disappointing because again, this movie does kind of have a backbone and no, I'm not talking about the book because the book is awful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a really hard time getting through this book and it's it's just it's not a good book. But Fleming put a lot of really bad racial stuff in there it's just not a good book but the the storyline that they kind of come up for the movie has a backbone that could be very interesting if it had been done with some tweaks and changes here and there but they kind of take the camp way out yeah every time and uh i think it definitely hurts the movie so we we finally arrive at jane seymour as solitaire and a big question I have for you is that Mankiewicz had 
a, I think, brilliant idea to have her be a black woman. And he wanted it to be Diana Ross Hmm. because he felt like it would fit the storyline that they were doing, which I think is exactly what I argued that we needed earlier was somebody who was African-American or black to be on James's side and not be somebody who feels incompetent. I just, I think it would have been fantastic. So I don't know. What do you, what do you think, John? Yeah, I agree. Um, there would also be, I think there would also be something about having somebody like Diana Ross there that would give that character a bit more backbone. The problem with the way that Solitaire is written and portrayed in this movie, and it's nothing against Jane Seymour. She's lovely. She is a great actor. Um, but she is so much the victim and so manipulated in this movie, not only manipulated by Kananga, but manipulated by Bond, um, that it's really distasteful. I think somebody like Diana Ross, I think you would have to rewrite that character a bit to fit her. And maybe give her a little R E S P E C T. Find out what it means to her. Well, uh, or, or, or Aretha Franklin. That's fine. You know? yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying. I think Diana Ross can need a little respect. You know what I'm saying? She. Yeah. I. I, I think that would have been a, it would have been a different interpretation on the character, and that that's really what that character needed. Yes, I definitely agree with you. I think that. Um, it's not the actor's fault. I think that the character needed more backbone to it, like everyone has said, and that she does get manipulated by everyone. And it felt also kind of weak in a way that they were trying to throw some reason in that Jane Seymour has her power of clairvoyance, of all knowing, of reading the cards because she's a virgin. Yep. And she actually says, now my gift has been taken away um, and Kananga is going to kill me. It just seems, like I said, like a, a weak reason for her to have that ability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think Diana Ross would have been and, awesome and, uh, or someone similar. What's so sad is that it could have been an interesting statement on human trafficking hmm. because it's it's something that's been around forever, mm-hmm. right? And so whether she's white or black, you could still do that story because it's 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 clear that her mother has been in this position now she is in this position and there's a history of human trafficking of people with this power right mm-hmm. i don't necessarily even think it's bad if that is because they are virgin it's how you write it and how it's portrayed here is just so the only word i can think of is just creepy you know, like the whole thing is creepy uh, and it works OK, I think, a little bit when it's it's more the villain towards that way with her. But then when you have your hero and I put that in quotes <laughs> here because the serious quotes, <laughs> your hero take advantage of her the same way. You kind of lack the hero. Yeah. Like and, and it's um, it would be different if the story had written that she asks for him to take away her power on purpose than he do it and not realizing he's doing it. And, you know, like, because she knows that this is going to happen when she sleeps with him, but she says it's just in the cards, right? Yeah. And he doesn't know that it's going to happen to her. Like, he doesn't realize that. But I would like it better if it was written that she's doing it on purpose and she makes that kind of clear afterwards like thank you for taking away this power now he doesn't because then she would be free technically pretty Mm -hmm. much well i mean yeah one she doesn't have the power and as long as she can get away with bond yeah she's exactly so um i mean jane seymour is ridiculously gorgeous in this role i mean she's a dream uh, and she's good enough for what she's given to do. I think like all this movie, what we're saying is it's just not written very well. I definitely agree. It was not her fault. It was the writing. Sorry, writers. I think that she did a great job with what she was given. And I did think that I have to give some props to the costume design. I think that her outfits were so interesting and elaborate. And I guess what in my imagination, I would kind of imagine 
a tarot card reader sequestered up in someone's mansion to wear. I hate those tarot cards that have the 007 logo on the back of them. Yes, yes. It's one thing to hide in a little self-referential something in a movie, but to have that on the back of every card and it's prominently displayed every time they show the cards, that drives me nuts. Mm. Mm-hmm. Good marketing. Yeah, it's, I mean, if you can buy them, great, but <laughs> it's too much. Yeah. It's too much. You're absolutely right. You know, uh, the thing that um I I like Jane Seymour. I love Jane Seymour. She's incredibly beautiful and uh she was absolutely f- so much fun on the extras. Uh, she tells some wonderful stories. So if you get a chance, watch them. Uh, the best thing about the extras with Jane Seymour, she is on the set of Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman while they're filming it. And she's wearing her like Dr. Quinn dress mm-hmm. and like has her hair done like Dr. Quinn and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I thought that was fabulous uh, to see because I was like, ah, classic. That's hilarious. What a time capsule right <laughs> nice. there. Uh, and for the most part, you would just think she's on another role, you know. I mean, for for younger audience, they'll never know that she's, you know, on Doctor Quinn. Right. But I, just, right. I I love that. It did make me kind of Fantastic. feel my years because I didn't recognize her at first that it was Jane Seymour in the movie, and then all of a sudden, my realization was it's Doctor Quinn, medicine woman. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Well, and uh, a couple years back. Um, when the 602 Club was a lot younger, Norman Lau made me watch the original Battlestar Galactica, mm. and she's in that yep. for a few episodes. And it's around the same time period, and she's just as beautiful. And so, yeah, they really picked somebody who is vibrant and gorgeous and everything else. And it's um, and she's, you know, iconic as a Bond woman mm-hmm. because of that. She's not iconic because of what she's actually given to do in the movie. Yeah. I got a question for you guys about J.W. Peppa. Nope. 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 (laughs) You don't like J.W. Peppa, boy. You're saying you don't like the Bayou. You know, I I forgot exactly how much of him was in there. I, I literally thought, you know, when that scene started up again, uh, I was oh, okay, well, yeah, he's parked in the car, and then he, he sees the other car go by, so he calls in, and he makes some stupid joke. And then we, we're going to see him again in a little bit at the end when he's a secret agent on whose side. And I thought, okay, that's it. I didn't realize it's like a good 15 minutes of J.W. Pepper jokes in there, just scattered throughout mm-hmm. this epic uh, boat chase. Yeah, boat and car chase. It just feels needless. Why did they throw it in, especially in a world that is not that type of character? He just seems very out of place, annoying, <laughs> you know, that that whole feel that would be a 70s cop film, not a Bond film set in Cajun territory. I guess they figured if they're going to go in for exploitation and stereotypes, they'll just hit all of them along the yeah, way. Yeah, throw another one in there. Um, you know, yeah. And there's also this weird thing about 70s and early 80s movie making, um, and I think particularly from a, a European sensibility, where it's sort of like they don't need a joke that they don't love. So one of the things that drives me insane about um, Superman 2 uh, was that when they brought in Richard Lester to make that movie, um, based on the footage that Richard Donner had already shot uh, simultaneous with Superman, uh, the movie, what Richard Lester did then was throw in all these jokes and one-liners that just didn't need to be there at all. And that seems to be kind of from the same school that brings you a character like J.W. Pepper. It's just like, well, we're, we're, we're missing a, a beat before we leave this scene. I know, we'll just throw in a a really stereotyped character and give him a, a punchline and then we can move on. They were creating, Megawitz created the character as an opportunity. They, he said they, he wanted somebody to be able to laugh at. So you're actually supposed to laugh at him, mm-hmm. you know, uh, 
which is good. At least he's recognizing we need to laugh at this guy and his ridiculous attitude about everyone but himself. Mm -hmm. If you had maybe seen him twice, that would be fine. But you're absolutely right. This gag gets drug on for at least 10 minutes or more of the film, along with a river chase and a car chase that's just... I mean... Technically, what they're having to do with the boats on the bayou and stuff and getting them to jump and everything, it's pretty fascinating watching, mm-hmm. like, the extras. But it's not an exciting thing. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to think of a boat chase that's actually exciting, and I feel like the only one that's truly exciting to me is uh, The World Is Not Enough mm-hmm. in the Thames. I think that's a pretty exciting boat chase. But this one, it just it's going on so long... And with the J.W. Peppa stuff happening all over the place, I just want to punch him in the face. You seem like yeah. you really like um, saying that, though. <laughs> I, just because it lets I, I can use my Texas accent, you know, and, and really dig into it. That's the only fun part. The rest of it, I, I was really cringing in. And I have to say this. During that whole part of the film, I was ridiculously bored. Yeah. And that hasn't happened in any of these Bond movies yet. Even Diamonds Are Forever. I wasn't bored. I was kind of more intrigued by some of the weird things that are happening on screen. But I was I was finding myself legitimately just playing with my phone during the scene, waiting for it to be over and get to the next point. Because I, I, I wasn't finding it visually entertaining, at least. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give him this, that, you know, technically there are many great moments in that. And, and again, like I said about the location, it feels very real world. It feels very tangible that these are, yeah, yeah, you know, real boats, real cars in a real location. So you can kind of wrap your head around that. And that does make it somewhat exciting, somewhat interesting, but uh, not enough, not enough to keep this thing going for more than 10 minutes. And it feels like the chase is not going somewhere. You you don't understand what the end goal is, and you're just watching the same two scenery interchange yeah. over and over again. Yeah, it's very true. You lose your sense of um, your sense of uh, space in that where they're trying mm-hmm. to get from, mm-hmm. where they're trying to go to, and what will happen when they get there. Yeah, but I did write oh, in my notes. Excellent. That uh, I said boats can cross land. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, you didn't know that. You actually, no, you both are blowing my mind. I don't know why I didn't think of that. But you're right. It's the spatial non-understanding of where you are and where you're trying to get to. Yeah. Because it just feels like, and and those those river systems in the bayou kind of feel like that, but it doesn't help you as a viewer. It You just kind of get lost. Uh, I, yeah, completely mm-hmm. agree. Um, and sadly, we're going to have to talk about J.W. Peppa again. <laughs> So, um, just get ready. Okay. Yeah, just steal your. What about his cousin? Are we um, gonna find out what happened to his cousin? <laughs> I don't think we ever find out about his cousin. So, the theme music and the music here. I mean, I, how do you even talk about Paul McCartney and "Live and Let Die"? I mean, this song. I mean, do you agree with me that you could argue that this is the best James Bond song? I mean, you can at least make the argument this is the best James Bond song, at least until this point. Hmm. You know, I don't know if it's the most quintessential James Bond song, but it is certainly one of the best. Yeah. Um, that that song does not get old. You know, I, I, I've heard it redone a couple of times. Uh, Paul McCartney doing it live a couple of times. And yeah, it's it's pretty phenomenal. And actually, the the themes within it work their way into the whole soundtrack really well, too. I was going to add that I did notice several times throughout the movie that they bring in that little riff from the song. Well, and I, I, wow, I completely agree with both of you. I think that's the thing that makes it so cool. And that's my favorite thing about any of the James Bond themes is when they're able to work in the thematic elements of the theme song into the movie Mm -hmm. itself. And, and kind of worked that in with the rest of the themes that they create. And I, I always love when they do that. I'm actually sometimes disappointed in some of the Craig films where it seems like an afterthought, the theme. And then they try and kind of work that in a little bit, but they don't get a chance to do it as much. Uh, Casino Royale does a great job of working in the theme to the rest of the soundtrack 
John Barry too, he's he's writing a score that's transitioning into the 70s sound, but still making it feel like Bond at the same time. Oh, hey, just, I, a, I, just a quick correction. I, I'm sorry to do this, but um, uh, of course, you know, Monty Norman came up with the original James Bond theme. John Barry sort of restructured that and did soundtracks. George Martin actually did this soundtrack. So John, oh really? Yeah, yeah. So kind of a nice combination there of uh, a Beatle and the Beatles producer creating the soundtrack. So I, I think that's partly what gave it that really different sound. It, it is funky and jazzy and seventies, but in the best way, not <laughs> not in a bad way. And that, I think, speaks volumes. Like, gosh, I can't believe I missed that in my research. Thanks for correcting me, John, yeah, yeah. And so I don't look like an idiot. <laughs> uh, I mean, I do until you corrected me. Um, but no, I think you're absolutely right. What's great about the soundtrack is that it sounds so much like a John Barry score mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with the 70s kind of added in. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah. That's fantastic that I didn't even realize that. Now, I will say this. There are a couple of cues in the movie that I think don't work quite, where they just kind of crank up the music a little too much. They're mm-hmm. using it to yeah. add a little punctuation that maybe is unnecessary. But regardless, it's still a great soundtrack. And like you said, it is one of those songs. And and I think when it's like nobody does it better. And mm-hmm. uh, when I think of uh, Adele's song for Skyfall, oh, my favorite, you know, you know, those those songs that transcend the Bond film that they're in so that they're on your playlist so that you hear them, you know, a lot or they'll other they actually get played on the radio more than just when the movie came out. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you'd hear them down the road. I mean, I I can't remember a time when I haven't listened to the radio like on a trip and the the more oldie station you know that plays 60s 70s and 80s or something like that doesn't play live and let mm-hmm. die right you know right. within a three-hour period it just happens yeah. so yeah it, it's that kind of iconic and uh you know Paul McCartney really cemented himself I think with uh, writing a song here for this uh, this movie and I'm glad he did because it's it gave us a bright light to talk about at the end. So um, we're we're here at the end <laughs> where uh, gun barrel scene. What do you rate? Live and let die. What do you think, Christy? For me, I guess I am going to say. Ooh, I have to figure out what I'm going to rate with. Mm, that's true. Mm. That's true. Crocodiles, maybe, or <laughs> you know, missing hands, or um. Yeah, I'm going to say probably um, tarot cards because that just keeps coming back to my mind. Um, Six out of ten tarot cards for me just because I think, like I said, that it had a good skeleton. It was an interesting story. The beginning sequence was great and it had a lot of good actors. I actually did not get to throw in that my favorite part of this movie also was Jeffrey Holder as Baron Samedi, I think is how you say his name. Yeah, Samedi. Yeah, he's wonderful. Yes. So yeah. I think those kind of things really redeem this movie and it's our first foray into Roger Moore movies. So I love that. Um, but I think that all of the black exploitation and JW Peppa and those those parts detract for me so I give it 6 out of 10. All right. And I uh, I will follow that by giving it a uh, you know what? I'm actually going to give it a 4 out of 10. I'm going to give it 4 magnetic watches yeah. out of 10. Yeah. Um and and one of those points is for the watch. It's a cool gag. And um <laughs> the watch and the dress was adorable. Yeah, right, right. Um, and, and I think Roger Moore is fine. I think Jeffrey Holder is great. Um, Yafet Koto is uh, exciting to watch. Um, it's just that, you know, when we got to this movie and looking at the schedule ahead, I was kind of excited. It's like, okay, well, we, we did all the Connery movies and we, we didn't exactly end on a great note with the Connery movies, but I was excited to get into this new era. And I remember liking this movie a lot more than when I rewatched it for this show. 
I can see why this movie was popular at the time. This movie does not hold up well, though. And it's really unfortunate. It, it, like you said, Christy, it's got good bones. It's got some good ideas. I think the idea in that boat chase is great, but it's just put together horribly. Um, and I don't think any of the failing of the, the movie or its, its inability to age well, I don't think any of that is due to Roger Moore. Um, it, it just, it, you have a problem with the, the writing, you've got a problem with that icky, exploitative feel. Um, it just doesn't fire the way you want it to. And, and it feels more like a 70s cop show even than um, Diamonds Are Forever did. And that felt a lot That's like yeah. That felt a lot like a '70s cop mm -hmm. show. It's tough. Um, I think that I am going to give this four and a half out of five crocodiles. <laughs> that half one got stepped on <laughs> by Bond, and he just he got four and it. a half. So, and he got yeah, and he he got eaten by the other <laughs> crocodiles. So, um, and and for all the reasons that we pointed out, you know, uh, there is a better movie here in in this. Uh, and I think we constructively talked about uh, the ways in which we would have changed it to make it a better film. And it gets those four and a half crocodiles because Roger Moore does bring something to this, this film franchise that it's needed for uh, at least since Diamonds. Um, I thought Lazenby was bringing that on Her Majesty's Secret Service, I thought he brought that vitality. Mm -hmm. uh, he brought a new feeling to Bond that I would have loved to have seen continue. Uh, unfortunately, he he doesn't continue with the films, and so we don't get that chance. Uh, Diamonds uh, brings back uh, an older and tireder <laughs> Sean Connery, and it doesn't really work. And here we finally do have a Bond who, while though he is older than Sean Connery, actually looks and feels younger. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, what he's giving to work with and what the other actors are giving to work with doesn't bring out the best of them. And I don't think that's their fault whatsoever. So, you know, when we talk about moving on with more, you know, I'm, I'm decently excited. Um, uh, now, I remember why I don't rewatch this movie. I just, you know, it, it's it's not a Bond movie that I feel like after you've probably seen it once or maybe twice, it, it's worth watching if, you, if you're just trying to say you've seen all the Bonds, but it's not really worth revisiting. And uh, so, you know, I'm excited to get to the, the man with the golden gun because at least we have Christopher Lee as the villain. Um, and, you know, Christopher Lee is always delicious in whatever role he's in. Uh, because he definitely puts his heart and soul into that, so I'm excited to get there with you guys. And then, of course, uh, the Spy Who Loved Me uh, is coming up soon mm -hmm. uh, this this summer. So, I mean, who's not excited about that? I mean, that's that's when Roger Moore is cemented, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, and and so much of what we know of Roger Moore is cemented. So, yeah, good stuff. Uh, and I love getting to talk about this stuff with you guys. Thank you so much for for joining me and, and joining me in this crusade of talking about <laughs> all of these Bond films. It's, it's an absolute blast doing it, and I'm so glad to have you both here. Uh, we get to do this because we have incredible people who support the network each and every week through Patreon.com because there's absolutely no way that we can release uh, a show almost every day in the network and have all the downloads we do. In fact, this month for the 602 Club was its second biggest month ever, and that was over 10,000 downloads. Now, each of those downloads actually costs us money. And so we need your help to make sure that we can keep all the shows coming to you each and every week. Uh, you can go to patreon.com slash trekfm and you can see how you can become part of the team. We've got some great stuff for you for different levels that you uh, are at. And uh, again, it, it's patreon.com slash trekfm. I want to say a huge thank you to Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson for supporting the 602 Club Associate Producers through Patreon. Both of those guys, longtime supporters of this show and the network, and we really, really appreciate it um, because it's people like them that make sure that it, it comes to you every week. Uh, it's going to be a busy time for the 602 Club here. Uh, we've got a bunch more supplementals coming for you because we've had so much geek stuff coming out recently. So just uh, buckle your seatbelts and enjoy it. Uh, I'll be working overtime for you guys, but I hope you like it. 
uh, you know, I don't want you to miss out on stuff. So, uh, goodness, Christy, uh, if anybody wants to talk to you about Bond or anything else, where can they find you online? They can find me at morechristy, M-O-R-R-C-H-R-I-S-T-Y. I'm mostly on Instagram and a little bit on Twitter. Awesome. Awesome. And John, uh, if anybody wants to catch up with you, talk a little bit of Bond or Star Trek or anything else, you know, uh, maybe they want to understand who that person is on the picture of your Twitter account. <laughs> right. Well, and I think you'd be glad to tell them. Yeah, I would be. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter directly at DVDGeeks. And uh, if you want to talk Star Trek, then uh, find me at Mission Log Pod or uh, go to the web, go to missionlogpodcast.com another show that you will find here on Trek FM. And uh, yeah, we'll just, we'll talk Trek over there, but we'll talk anything else over at, at DVD geeks. Yes. Yes. And you should definitely catch up with John uh, again. Uh, ask him who that avatar is because it's a, it's a person in a show that you want to know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's good stuff. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Matt rushing zero two. I am on Instagram at mrushing. Uh, make sure you're following that because it's going to be at Star Wars Celebration in a couple weeks and there's going to be lots of pictures coming for that so be sure to follow me on Twitter or Instagram. You're going to love it uh, with all the Star Wars news and fun coming. You can find me here on the network with the 602 Club of course and the Star Wars 602 Club collection. Both of those, those are two different feeds. They're on iTunes and they both need your help with star ratings and reviews. Uh, we are doing a review contest. We lost all of our reviews for the Star Wars 602 Club collection uh, because of a snafu with iTunes. We're giving away a couple of copies of Rogue One on Blu-ray. So you got till May 18th to get those reviews in there, and uh, we'll do a drawing for both of those copies, and hopefully you'll win the brand new Star Wars movie that's coming out on Blu-ray. You can also find me on the Nerd Party Network with John Mills talking about aggressive negotiations. It is a blast as we dive into the fun, esoteric, weird, minutia, goofiness, silliness, seriousness of Star Wars each and every week. You're going to want to check it out. It's a blast. And then I'm doing Owl Post, a Harry Potter podcast with Drea Kaufman there, talking about each and every chapter of Harry Potter and it's so much fun. So again, all those shows are on iTunes, so I hope that you will check them out. And thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? Yeah.